0: Chapter 7 of My Lady Ludlow by Elizabeth Gaskell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Capricia Page. My Lady Ludlow by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter 7 I have told you that I heard much of this story from a friend of the intendant of the de Crequis, whom he met with in London. Some years afterwards, the summer before my lord's death, I was travelling with him in Devonshire, and we went to see the French prisoners of war on Dartmoor. We fell into conversation with one of them, whom I found out to be the very Pierre of whom I had heard before, as having been involved in the fatal story of Clément and Verzini, and by him I was told much of their last days, and thus I learnt how to have some sympathy with all those who were concerned in those terrible events. Yes, even with the younger Moron himself, on whose behalf Pierre spoke warmly, even after so long a time had elapsed. For when the younger Moron called at the porter's lodge, On the evening of the day when Verzini had gone out, for the first time after so many months' confinement to the conciergerie, he was struck with the improvement in her appearance. It seems to have hardly been that he thought her beauty greater, for, in addition to the fact that she was not beautiful, Moran had arrived at that point of being enamoured when it does not signify whether the beloved one is plain or handsome she has enchanted one pair of eyes, which henceforth see her through their own medium. But Moran noticed the faint increase of colour and light in her countenance. It was as though she had broken through her thick cloud of hopeless sorrow, and was dawning forth into a happier life. And so, whereas during her grief he had revered and respected it even to a point of silent sympathy, now that she was gladdened, his heart rose on the wings of strength and hopes. Even in the dreary monotony of this existence in his Aunt Babette's conciergerie, time had not failed in his work, and now, perhaps, soon he might humbly strive to help time. The very next day he returned, on some pretense of business, to the Hotel du Gueclin, and made his aunt's room rather than his aunt herself, a present of some roses and geraniums tied up in a bouquet with a tricolour ribbon. Virzini was in the room, sitting at the coarse sewing she liked to do for Madame Babette. He saw her eyes brighten at the sight of the flowers. She asked his aunt to let her arrange them. He saw her untie the ribbon, and with a gesture of dislike throw it on the ground and give it a kick with her little foot and even in this girlish manner of insulting his dearest prejudices, he found something to admire. As he was coming out, Pierre stopped him. The lad had been trying to arrest his cousin's attention by futile grimaces and signs playing off behind Rosini's back, but Monsieur Moran saw nothing but Mademoiselle Cannes. However, Pierre was not to be baffled and Monsieur Morin found him in waiting just outside the threshold. With his finger on his lips, Pierre walked on tiptoe by his companion's side, till they would have been long past sight or hearing of the conciergerie, even had the inhabitants devoted themselves to the purposes of spying or listening. "'Shoot!' said Pierre at last. "'She goes out walking.' "'Well?' said Monsieur Moran, half-curious, half-annoyed, at being disturbed in the delicious reverie of the future into which he longed to fall. "'Well, it is not well. It is bad.' "'Why, I do not ask who she is, but I have my ideas. She is an aristocrat. Do the people about here begin to suspect?' "'No, no,' said Pierre. "'But she goes out walking.' she has gone these two mornings i have watched her she meets a man she's friends with him for she talks to him as eagerly as he does to her mamma cannot tell who he is has my aunt seen him no not so much as a fly's wing of him i myself have only seen his back it strikes me like a familiar back and yet i cannot think who it is but they separate with sudden darts like two birds who have been together to feed their young ones. One moment they are in close talk, their heads together chucketing. The next he has turned up some by-street, and Mademoiselle Cannes is close upon me, has almost caught me. But she did not see you, inquired Monsieur Morin, in so altered a tone that Pierre gave him one of his quick penetrating looks. He was struck by the way in which his cousin's features, always coarse and commonplace, had been contracted and pinched struck too by the livid look on his sallow complexion. But as if Morin was conscious of the manner in which his face belied his feelings, he made an effort, and smiled, and patted Pierre's head, and thanked him for his intelligence, and gave him a five-franc piece, and bade him go on with his observations of Mademoiselle Cannes's movements, and report all to him. Pierre returned home with a light heart, tossing up his five-franc piece as he ran. Just as he was at the conciergerie door, a great tall man bustled past him and snatched his money away from him, looking back with a laugh which added insult to injury. Pierre had no redress. No one had witnessed the impudent theft. And if they had, no one to be seen in the street was strong enough to give him redress. Besides, Pierre had seen enough of the state of the streets of Paris at that time to know that friends, not enemies, were required, and the man had a bad air about him. But all these considerations did not keep Pierre from bursting out into a fit of crying when he was once more under his mother's roof. And Virzini, who was alone there, Madame Babette having gone out to make her daily purchases, might have imagined him pummeled to death by the loudness of his sobs what is the matter asked she speak my child what hast thou done he has robbed me he has robbed me was all pierre could gulp out robbed thee and of what my poor boy said virginie stroking his hair gently of my five-franc piece of a five-franc piece said Pierre, correcting himself, and leaving out the word, my, half fearful, lest Rosini should inquire how he came possessed of such a sum, and for what services it had been given him. But, of course, no such idea came into her head, for it would have been impertinent, and she was gentle-born. Wait a moment, my lad, and going into one small drawer in the inner apartment, which held all her few possessions, she brought back a little ring a ring with just one ruby in it which she had worn in the days when she cared to wear jewels take this said she and run with it to a jeweller's it is but a poor valueless thing but it will bring you in your five francs at any rate go i desire you but i cannot said the boy hesitating some dim sense of honour flitting through his misty morals yes you must she continued urging him with her hand on the door Run, if it brings in more than five francs, you shall return the surplus to me. Thus tempted by her urgency, and I suppose reasoning with himself to the effect that he might as well have the money and then see whether he thought it right to act as a spy upon her or not, the one action did not pledge him to the other, nor yet did she make any conditions with her gift. Pierre went off with her ring, and after repaying himself his five francs, he was enabled to bring Verzini back two more, so well he had managed his affairs. But although the whole transaction did not leave him bound in any way to discover or forward Verzini's wishes, it did leave him pledged, according to his code, to act according to her advantage, and he considered himself the judge over the best course to be pursued to this end. And, moreover, this little kindness attached him to her personally. He began to think how pleasant it would be to have so kind and generous a person for a relation! How easily his troubles might be borne if he had always such a ready helper at hand! How much he should like to make her like him, and come to him for the protection of his masculine power! First of all his duties as her self-appointed squire, came the necessity of finding out who her strange new acquaintance was. Thus, you see, he arrived at the same end, via supposed duty, that he was previously pledged to via interest. I fancy a good number of us, when any line of action will promote our own interest, can make ourselves believe that reasons exist which compel us to do it as a duty. In the course of a very few days pierre had so circumvented virginie as to have discovered that her new friend was no other than the norman farmer in different dress this was a great piece of knowledge to impart to morin but pierre was not prepared for the immediate physical effect it had on his cousin morin sat silently down on one of the seats in the boulevard it was there pierre had met with him accidentally when he heard who it was that virginie met I do not suppose the man had the faintest idea of any relationship, or even previous acquaintanceship, between Clement and Verzini. If he thought of anything beyond the mere fact presented to him, that his idol was in communication with another, younger, handsomer man than himself, it must have been that the Norman farmer had seen her at the conciergerie, and had been attracted by her, and, as was but natural, had tried to make her acquaintance and had succeeded but from what pierre told me i should not think that even this much thought passed through moran's mind he seemed to have been a man of rare and concentrated attachments violent though restrained and undemonstrative passions and above all a capability of jealousy of which his dark oriental complexion must have been a type i could fancy that if he had married versini He would have coined his life-blood for luxuries to make her happy, would have watched over and petted her, at every sacrifice to himself, as long as she would have been content to live with him alone. But as Pierre expressed it to me, when I saw what my cousin was, when I learned his nature too late, I perceived that he would have strangled a bird if she whom he loved was attracted by it from him. When Pierre had told Morin of his discovery, Morin sat down, as I said, quite suddenly, as if he had been shot. He found out that the first meeting between the Norman and Virginie was no accidental isolated circumstance. Pierre was torturing him with his accounts of daily rendezvous, if but for a moment they were seeing each other every day, sometimes twice a day, and Virginie could speak to this man though to himself he was coy and reserved as hardly to utter a sentence. Pierre caught these broken words while his cousin's complexion grew more and more livid and then purple, as if some great effect were produced upon his circulation by the news he had just heard. Pierre was so startled by his cousin's wandering, senseless eyes and otherwise disordered looks that he rushed into a neighbouring cabaret for a glass of absinthe which he paid for, as he recollected afterwards, with a portion of Rosini's five francs. By and by Moron recovered his natural appearance, but he was gloomy and silent, and all that Pierre could get out of him was that the Norman farmer should not sleep another night at the Hôtel du Gecklin, giving him such opportunities of passing and repassing by the Conciergerie d'Or. He was too much absorbed in his own thoughts to repay Pierre the half-franc he had spent on the absent, which Pierre perceived, and seems to have noted down in the ledger of his mind, as on Vrizini's balance of favour. Altogether he was much disappointed at his cousin's mood of receiving intelligence, which the lad thought worth another five-franc piece at least, or, if not paid for in money, to be paid for in open-mouthed confidence, an expression of feeling that he was for a time—so far a partisan of Rosini's unconscious Rosini against his cousin, as to feel regret when the Norman returned no more to his night's lodging, and when Rosini's eager watch at the crevice of the closely-drawn blinds ended only with a sigh of disappointment. If it had not been for his mother's presence at the time, Pierre thought he should have told her all. But how far was his mother and his cousin's confidence as regarded the dismissal of the Norman? In a few days, however, Pierre felt almost sure that they had established some new means of communication. Brissini went out for a short time every day, but though Pierre followed her as closely as he could without exciting her observation, he was unable to discover what kind of intercourse she held with the Norman. She went, in general, the same short round along the little shops in the neighborhood, not entering any, but stopping at two or three. Pierre afterwards remembered that she had invariably paused at the nosegays displayed in a certain window and studied them long, but then she stopped and looked at caps, hats, fashions, confectionery, all of the humble kind common in that quarter. So how should he, have known that any particular attraction existed among the flowers. Moran came more regularly than ever to his aunts, but virginie was apparently unconscious that she was the attraction. She looked healthier and more hopeful than she had done for months, and her manners to all were gentler and not so reserved, almost as if she wished to manifest her gratitude to Madame Babette for her long continuance of kindness. The necessity for which was nearly ended. Rosini showed an unusual alacrity in rendering the old woman any little service in her power, and evidently tried to respond to Monsieur Morin's civilities, he being Madame Babette's nephew, with a soft graciousness which must have made one of her principal charms. For all who knew her spake of the fascination of her manners, so winning and attentive to others while yet her opinions, and often her actions, were of so decided a character. For as I have said, her beauty was by no means great, yet every man who came near her seems to have fallen into the sphere of her influence. M. Morin was deeper than ever in love with her during these last few days. He was worked up into a state capable of any sacrifice, either of himself or others so that he might obtain her at last he sat devouring her with his eyes to use pierre's expression whenever she could not see him but if she looked towards him he looked to the ground anywhere away from her and almost stammered in his replies if she addressed him any question he had been i should think ashamed of his extreme agitation on the boulevard for pierre thought that he absolutely shunned him for these these few succeeding days he must have believed that he had driven the Norman, my poor Clement, off the field, by banishing him from his inn, and thought that the intercourse between him and Verzini, which he had thus interrupted, was one of so slight and transient a character as to be quenched by a little difficulty. But he appeared to have felt that he had made but little way, and he awkwardly turned to Pierre for help not yet confessing his love, though. He only tried to make friends again with the lad after their silent estrangement, and Pierre for some reason did not choose to perceive his cousin's advances. He would reply to all the roundabout questions Morin put to him, respecting household conversations when he was not present, or household occupations and tone of thought, without mentioning Rosini's name any more than his questioner did. The lad would seem to suppose that his cousin's strong interest in their domestic ways of going on was all on account of Madame Babette. At last he worked his cousin up to the point of making him a confidant, and then the boy was half frightened at the torrents of vehement words he had unloosed. The lava came down with a greater rush for having been pent up so long. Moron cried out his words, in a hoarse, passionate voice clenched his teeth, his fingers, and seemed almost convulsed, as he spoke out his terrible love for Virginie, which would lead him to kill her sooner than see her another's, and if another stepped in between him and her—and then he smiled a fierce, triumphant smile, but did not say any more. Pierre was, as I said, half frightened, but also half admiring. This was really love, a grande passion, a really fine dramatic thing, like the play as they acted at the little theatre yonder. He had a dozen times the sympathy with his cousin now that he had had before, and readily swore by the infernal gods—for they were far too enlightened to believe in one god, or Christianity, or, or anything of the kind—that he would devote himself body and soul to forwarding his cousin's views. Then his cousin took him to a shop and bought him a smart second-hand watch on which they scratched the word fidelite, and thus was the compact sealed. Pierre settled in his own mind that if he were a woman he should like to be loved as Virginie was by his cousin, and that it would be an extremely good thing for her to be the wife of so rich a citizen as Morin Fils and for Pierre himself, too, for doubtless their gratitude would lead them to give him rings and watches ad infinitum. A day or two afterwards virginie was taken ill. Madame Babette said it was because she had persevered in going out in all weathers, after confining herself to two warm rooms for so long. And very probably this was the case, for, from Pierre's account, she must have been suffering from a feverish cold aggravated no doubt by her impatience at madame babette's familiar prohibitions of any more walks until she was better every day in spite of her trembling aching limbs she would fain have arranged her dress for her walk at the usual time but madame babette was fully prepared to put physical obstacles in her way if she was not obedient in remaining tranquil on the little sofa by the side of the fire on the third day she called pierre to her when his mother was not attending, having in fact locked up Mademoiselle Can's out-of-door things. "'See, my child,' said Verzini, "'thou must do me a great favour. Go to the gardener's shop, in the Rue des Siphons, and look at the nosegays in the window. I long for pinks. They are my favourite flower. Here are two francs. If thou seest a nosegay of pinks displayed in the window—' if it be ever so faded, nay if thou seest two or three nosegays of pinks remember buy them all and bring them to me i have so great a desire for the smell she fell back weak and exhausted pierre hurried out now was the time here was the clue to the long inspection of the nosegay in this very shop sure enough there was a drooping nosegay of pinks in the window pierre went in and with all his impatience he made as good a bargain as he could, urging that the flowers were faded, and good for nothing. At last he purchased them, at a very moderate price, and now you will learn the bad consequences of teaching the lower orders anything beyond what is immediately necessary to enable them to earn their daily bread. The silly Count de Crecy, who had been sent to his bloody rest by the very canai of whom he thought so much he who had made virginie indirectly it is true reject such a man as her cousin clement by inflating her mind with his bubbles of theories this count de crequy had long ago taken a fancy to pierre as he saw the bright sharp boy playing about his court monsieur de crequy had even begun to educate the boy himself to try to work out certain opinions of his into practice but the drudgery of the affair wearied him and beside babette had left his employment. Still the Count took a kind of interest in his former pupil, and made some sort of arrangement by which Pierre was to be taught reading and writing and accounts, and heaven knows what besides Latin, I dare say. So Pierre, instead of being an innocent messenger as he ought to have been, as Mr. Horner's little lad Gregson ought to have been this morning, could read writing as well as either you or I. So what does he do on obtaining the nosegay? but examine it well. The stalks of the flowers were tied up with slips of matting in wet moss. Pierre undid the strings, unwrapped the moss, and out fell a piece of wet paper, with the writing all blurred with moisture. It was but a torn piece of writing-paper, apparently, but Pierre's wicked mischievous eyes read what was written on it, written so as to look like a fragment ready every and any night at nine. All is prepared. Have no fright. Trust one who, whatever hopes he might once have had, is content now to serve you as a faithful cousin. And a place was named, which I forget, but which Pierre did not, as it was evidently the rendezvous. After the lad had studied every word, till he could say it off by heart, he placed the paper where he had found it, "'enveloped it in moss and tied the whole up again carefully. "'Virzini's face colored scarlet as she received it. "'She kept smelling it and trembling, but she did not untie it, "'although Pierre suggested how much fresher it would be "'if the stalks were immediately put into water. "'But once, after his back had been turned for a minute, "'he saw it untied, when he looked around again, "'and Virzini was blushing and hiding something in her bosom. Pierre was now all impatience to set off and find his cousin, but his mother seemed to want him, for small domestic purposes, even more than usual, and he had chafed over a multitude of errands connected with the hotel before he could set off and search for his cousin at his usual haunts. At last the two met, and Pierre related all the events of the morning to Moran. He said the note off word by word. The lad this morning had something of that magpie look of Pierre, It made me shudder to see him, and hear him repeat the note by heart. Then Moron asked him to tell him all over again. Pierre was struck by Morin's heavy sighs as he repeated the story. When he came the second time to the note, Morin tried to write the words down, but either he was not a good ready scholar, or his fingers trembled too much. Pierre hardly remembered, but at any rate the lad had to do it, with his wicked reading and writing. When this was done, Morin sat heavily silent. Pierre would have preferred the expected outburst, for this impenetrable gloom perplexed and baffled him. He had even to speak to his cousin to rouse him, and when he replied, what he said had so little apparent connection with the subject which Pierre had expected to find uppermost in his mind that he was half afraid that his cousin had lost his wits my aunt is out of coffee i am sure i do not know said pierre yes she is i heard her say so tell her that a friend of mine has just opened a shop in the rue saint saintoine and that if she will join me there in one hour i will supply her with a good stock of coffee just to give my friend encouragement his name is antoine meyer number one hundred and fifty at the sign of the cap of liberty i could go with you now i can carry a few pounds of coffee better than my mother said pierre all in good faith he told me he should never forget the look on his cousin's face as he turned around and bade him begone and give his mother the message without another word it had evidently sent him home promptly to obey his cousin's command moron's message perplexed madame babette how could he know i was out of coffee said she i am but i am only last up this morning how could victor know about it i'm sure i can't tell said pierre who by this time had recovered his usual self-possession all i know is that monsieur is in a pretty temper and that if you are not sharp to the time to this antoine myers you are likely to come in for some of his black looks Well, it it is very kind of him to offer to give me some coffee, to be sure, but how could he know I was out?" Pierre hurried his mother off impatiently, for he was certain that the offer of the coffee was only a blind to some hidden purpose on his cousin's part, and he made no doubt that when his mother had been informed of what his cousin's real intention was, he, Pierre, could extract it from her by coaxing or bullying, but he was mistaken. Madame Babette returned home grave, depressed, silent, and loaded with the best coffee. Some time afterwards, he learnt why his cousin had sought for this interview. It was to extract from her, by promises and threats, the real name of Mademoiselle Cannes, which would give him a clue to the true appellation of the faithful cousin. He concealed the second purpose from his aunt— who had been quite unaware of his jealousy of the Norman farmer, or of his identification of him with any relation of Verzini's, but Madame Babette instinctively shrank from giving him any information. She must have felt that, in the lowering mood in which she found him, his desire for greater knowledge of Rosini's antecedents boded her no good, and yet he made his aunt his confidant. He told her what she had only suspected before that he was deeply enamoured of Mademoiselle Cannes, and would gladly marry her. He spoke to Madame Babette of his father's hoarded riches, and of the share which he, as partner, had in them at the present time, and of the prospect of the succession to the whole, which he had as only child. He told his aunt of the provision of her, Madame Babette's, life, which he would make on the day when he married Mademoiselle Cannes, And yet, and yet, Babette saw that in his eye and look, which made her more and more reluctant to confide in him, by and by he tried threats. She should leave the conciergerie and find employment where she liked. Still silence. Then he grew angry, and swore that he would inform her at the bureau of the directory for harbouring an aristocrat. An aristocrat he knew Mademoiselle was, whatever her real name might be. His aunt should have a domiciliary visit, and see how she liked that. The officers of the government were the people for finding out secrets. In vain she reminded him, that by doing so he would expose to imminent danger the lady whom he had professed to love. He told her, with a sullen relapse into silence after his vehement outpouring of passion, never to trouble herself about that. At last he wearied out the old woman and frightened alike of herself and of him, she told him all, that Mademoiselle Cannes was Mademoiselle Rosini de Crecchi, daughter of the Count of that name. Who was the Count? Younger brother of the Marquis. Where was the Marquis? Dead long ago, leaving a widow and child. A son? Eagerly. Yes, a son. Where was he? Pablo? How should she know? For her courage returned a little as the talk went away from the only person of the de crequy family that she cared about. By dint of some small glasses out of a bottle of Antoine Myers, she told him more about the de Crequys than she liked afterwards to remember. For the exhilaration of the brandy lasted but a very short time, and she came home, as I have said, depressed, with a presentiment of coming evil. She would not answer Pierre but cuffed him about in a manner to which the spoilt boy was quite unaccustomed. His cousin's short, angry words, and sudden withdrawal of confidence, his mother's unwanted crossness and fault-finding, all made Rosini's kind, gentle treatment, more than ever charming to the lad. He half resolved to tell her how he had been acting as a spy upon her actions, and at whose desire he had done it. But he was afraid of Moran, and of the vengeance which he was sure would fall upon him for any breach of confidence. Towards half-past eight that evening Pierre, watching, saw Virzini arrange several little things. She was in the inner room, but he sat where he could see her through the glazed partition. His mother sat, apparently sleeping, in the great easy-chair. Virzini moved about softly for fear of disturbing her. She made up one or two little parcels of the few things she could call her own, one packet she concealed about herself, the others she directed, and left on the shelf. She is going, thought Pierre, and as he said in giving me the account, his heart gave a spring to think that he should never see her again. If either his mother or his cousin had been more kind to him, he might have endeavoured to intercept her but as it was he held his breath, and when she came out he pretended to read, scarcely knowing whether he wished her to succeed in the purpose which he was almost sure she entertained or not. She stopped by him and passed her hand over his hair. He told me that his eyes filled with tears this caress. Then she stood for a moment looking at the sleeping Madame Babette, and stooped down and softly kissed her on the forehead. Pierre dreaded, lest his mother should awake, for by this time the wayward, vacillating boy must have been quite on Virzini's side. But the brandy she had drunk made her slumber heavily, and went. Pierre's heart beat fast. He was sure his cousin would try to intercept her, but how he could not imagine. He longed to run out and see the catastrophe, but he had let the moment slip— He was also afraid of reawakening his mother to her unusual state of anger and violence. End of chapter seven of My Lady Ludlow by Elizabeth Gaskell. Read by Capricia Page.